and welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. Rifki, we're back. It is, Uri, it is crazy to me. First of all, like, how many people, thank God, I feel very lucky, how many people have said, you know, uh, have emailed us, have been in touch, said, you know, when are you guys coming back? We're excited to, we're excited to keep listening. Where have you been? But also just how much I felt a lack. Like, just, this is, this is something that, I, I mean, listeners know, like, we don't make any money from this. You know, this is not something that, like, we're doing because of, because it's a job, because it's something. Like, we just do this because we love it. We love talking to each other about complicated issues, and we love kind of holding ourselves accountable by recording it. We love interacting with all of you when you email us. And, and not having done this the past few months because of beautiful simchas in both of our lives, which we can talk about or not, um, it's become, Something we we haven't been engaging in. It's it's been a little hard. I don't know. Are you? What about you? Yeah, what do you same. Think? I think also doing the podcast for me. One of the things I always get out of it is just forcing me to be on top of what's going on in the world, what people are saying and thinking. And yeah. that's something that I want to do anyway. But if we're, if I don't have the podcast forcing me to do it, sometimes I don't do it as much. But there's definitely has been a lot going on and a lot that people have said like, "Are you going to talk about this? Are you going to talk about that?" Yeah. So. Yeah. So, er, so I, uh, we, we we don't have to talk about it more. But um, recently, you got married. I got married. And what yes. of to me? I feel like you know going to your wedding because you're you're during COVID times weddings have been very different. Mm-hmm. So your wedding was was smaller. It was a different kind of vibe. It was an incredible wedding. Thank you. Highly recommend for anyone looking for um, wedding planning. Contact Uri Westrich. <laughs> you know, uh, uh-huh. pro, amazing. But I, it is amazing to me. I was a little bit nervous going into it. Like, I don't even know who I'm going to know. You know, it's a smaller thing. Like, I don't know your extended family. You know, most 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 people were really family members. Yeah. And it was such a joy how many people came up to me and just wanted to talk about the podcast. Oh, really? How many people <laughs> who I hadn't met. I, I spent the whole time You're like, the talking famous to... Ricky? Was it like it, that? It was <laughs> awesome. Exactly. It was awesome. It was so, so, so exciting. Um, and talking to people and having serious conversations. Not just like, oh, it's fun. Oh, I like this. Oh, I don't like this. Like people kind of bringing up the kind of the having mini almost episodes of debating serious issues and talking oh. through complicated issues about is you know if anything or you missed out i you know? feel I'm, i don't yeah i have fomo now <laughs> I did, yeah I did, this is the first time you're telling me this that's great yeah. i'm so glad to hear it that. was it was great it was great i mean it was a great wedding for other reasons also but you know for fundamentally this was the best I'll part of it. it so we're in mazel tov thank on, you. on thank your you. wedding and mazel tov to you as well for the new addition to your family thank you so much it's, it's crazy to think how, how long it's been at this point so, you know, we're finally back. We're finally back, and we're, we have a really exciting guest, so let's just dive straight into it. Dr. Joshua M. Karlip is the Herbert S. and Naomi Denenberg Associate Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University and Associate Director of the Yeshiva University Center for Israel Studies. He's the author of The Tragedy of a Generation, The Rise and Fall of Jewish Nationalism in Eastern Europe. Carlip's current book project, Rabbis in the Land of Atheism, The Struggle to Save Judaism in Bolshevik Russia, tells the untold story of rabbinic resistance to the Soviet Union's war on religion. So, Dr. Carlip, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us today. Um, thank you so much, Uri and Rifki, for having me. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. We're very, very excited that you're here, Dr. Carlip. So, uh, Dr. Carlip, before we even get into the, the kind of meat, you wrote this really, really interesting piece in Tablet Magazine, which is, a, of course, a Jewish online magazine, uh, that we really wanted to talk to you about. So before we even uh, ask questions, can you just tell our listeners, tell us about the article. What's the article about? What prompted you to write it? Uh, what do you think are the most sort of salient or important points in the article itself? Right. Okay. Well, first, I'll just give the background of what prompted me to write it. Um, 
a little over a month ago during this uh, latest uh, Hamas's uh, latest war or latest battle in their war against Israel um, sort of at the end of the at the end of this uh, round um, there was a statement released by a group of Jewish studies and Israel studies professors called quote statement on Israel slash Palestine by Jewish studies and Israel studies professors. It was signed by 208 um, Jewish studies and Israel studies uh, professors. And um, as soon as I read it, I just, you know, it, it really literally made me feel sick um, because, um, you know, I do have a somewhat of a personal connection that 25 years ago, uh, two friends of mine were, were murdered in a bus bombing, the number 18 bus um, in Jerusalem in 19, February 1996 by Hamas. Um, and here it is 25 years later, and Hamas uh, rules now over its own mini state in, in Gaza. Now it's not bus bombings, it's the whole Israel that's under rocket fire. And here I have colleagues of mine who are referring, who in the first sentence of the statement are uh, condemning the, quote, state violence of the Israeli government against the people of Gaza, not mentioning the Hamas rockets until, you know, either the second or the third paragraph, sort of almost as an afterthought, um, referring to Israel as a colonialist, uh, Zionism in Israel as a colonialist endeavor um, that practices, quote, Jewish supremacy that's unsustainable and that needs to be dismantled. And, you know, the, basically the letter or the statement does everything but openly call for the end of Israel as the Jewish nation state and its replacement uh, with a binational state, um, which um, in my opinion and in the opinion of almost all the experts would be a Palestinian majority um, state. Um, so, you know, this rhetoric, and then I looked through the signatories and I found names of people, of, of colleagues of mine that I respect their work. Um, I've gone to, you know, we were in graduate school at the same time together, um, not in the same graduate school, but mm -hmm. in different graduate schools. Um, people, some of whom I knew were proud Zionists who visited Israel often 10, 15, 20 years ago. And now they're signing this. And, and Israelis. And Israelis as well, right? And Israelis, right? And Israelis. And, you know, I, it just, you know, when you see this anti-Israel rhetoric and this delegitimization de and demonization of Israel, when it comes from non-Jewish um, academics, it's sad, but you're used, you know, you, you, I've become used to it. But when it comes from my colleagues from within my own field, you know, I felt a, a strong sense of betrayal. And so um, I wrote this piece um, looking toward the historical figure, Zelik Kalmanovich, who I, I'm his primary biographer in my book, The Tragedy of a Generation. Um, Kalmanovich was a Yiddishist um, uh, who lived in Eastern Europe in the first half of the 20th century. Um, he spent most of his life being a diaspora nationalist, meaning that he believed that Jews should achieve Jewish national autonomy in uh, East, East, the East Central European states. Um, however, at the end of his life, he ended up being killed in the Holocaust. At the end of his life, he became a Zionist. He also returned uh, much more to Jewish religion from being a staunch secularist. And uh, Kalmanovich had been very, very disillusioned by the steady flow of his colleagues uh, back to the Soviet Union, um, where they could receive material support 
uh, for their Yiddish scholarship as long as they towed the party line, as long as they basically denied the existence of a unified Jewish nation, as long as they argued against the importance of Hebrew, against the importance of the religious tradition. Um, and he had many colleagues, including one of his close friends, Nachum Stiff, who went back and then Stiff uh, became a um, the chair of, uh, basically had a chair of Jewish studies at the Ukrainian National Academy of Sciences, um, where he argued um, for the quote, military occupation of Hebrew, that he, the Hebrew's military occupation of the secular Yiddish language, um, and, and that the, um, the Yiddish, the, the Hebrew component, the Lushan Kodesh component of the Yiddish language needs to be eradicated. This was the intellectual arm, the academic arm of the Yavsekzia, the Jewish communists' war on Jewish religion and on Zionism, where they got ahead of the, of the Soviet government in persecuting and shutting down Jewish religion and Zionism in the Soviet Union. So I made the comparison between the Yavsekzia and those Jewish studies um, professors, those Yiddish uh, uh, scholars in the Soviet Union then, and those on the progressive left, the Jewish studies professors who are adopting this stance today. So it sounds like fundamentally, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm doing a very simplistic understanding, uh, but it sounds like fundamentally the argument you're making is Back then, there were Jewish academics who basically, from the inside, quote unquote, of the Jewish community, uh, kind of betrayed uh, their their the the rest of the the rest of the people, right? For for one reason or another, maybe they did it because they felt coerced uh, professionally, maybe they did it because they truly believed um, in these things. But but fundamentally, they rejected the rest of their nation, and this was really catastrophic, I think, for for the Jewish people. And you're basically making the same argument today about the people who signed this letter. That people who signed this letter basically, you know, it's obviously more nuanced, but you're. I think you're saying like not that much more nuanced. They're basically saying that um, Israel is at fault. They're calling on Israel from from the inside, right? Again, quote unquote, from being Jewish, being uh, many of them Israeli, from the inside, saying, blaming Israel for basically everything, and saying that these people too are betraying their people. Is that? Do you think that's accurate? Yes. Yes, it okay. is accurate. I, I think that first of all, I also provide some historical. Um, background to how um, Jewish academics, people who have knowledge of Jewish history, people, you know, who should know better, um, you know, uh, fall into this line of thinking. And I, I've argued that since the dawn of uh, the emancipation of Jews in France in 1789 to 1791, the, the, the uh, quid pro quo for acceptance of Jews as citizens in uh France and then in every uh, modern nation state was the Jews abandoned their collective identity. Um, that, you know, um, uh, uh, Clermont Tonnet, the, the advocate, the great champion of Jewish emancipation in France made the famous statement, we must deny everything to the Jews as a nation. We must grant um, them everything as individuals. By a nation, he meant that they have to dissolve their kehilot, they have to stop running their own affairs according to Jewish law, um, et cetera, et cetera. Jews took that to mean that, and that they should um, abandon everything that's um, ethnically particularistic 
about themselves, their language, Yiddish, their dress, um, their, the various religious, the, the, the mitzvot and customs that set them apart from their neighbors, um, which is a major impetus for, for the rise of, of the classic reform movement in Germany, which denied Jewish nationhood or ethnicity and said Jews are uh, Germans of the Jewish religion. Therefore, they should pray in German. Therefore, they should excise from, this, from the Sidur every reference to returning to Zion, etc. Yeah, I think one of the most ironic things about this letter is something that you just mentioned, that of all you know, academic departments, the Jewish studies department should know better than anybody else what the history is, the history of Zionism, the history of the Jewish people in the land of Israel, and to see them now saying what we've heard from so many other departments in the humanities, I think is very sad and, and scary. And kind of the question that I would think about is, do they really believe what they're saying? Or is this being motivated by other um, factors? And something else that, that I think you also touched on, and you can take this where, where you want, um, something that I think people are uncomfortable talking about in general is something that you hear a lot is it's okay to be a perfectly proud um, Jew, someone who identifies as Jewish, practices Judaism in whatever way that is, but is critical of the state of Israel. And those are completely separate things. That's the PC way of putting it. But you kind of make the argument in your article that obviously there's exceptions and different ways of doing it, but there's this push where these two things come together, at least in what you're talking about, the Jewish studies departments in America, where there's this push against Israel, against Zionism, against the existence of the state of Israel, you could say, and also what you call a de Judaization of Jewish studies itself, with taking the, the Jewish peoplehood and collective out of the studies. And you would think, according to that way of the PC way of saying it, those should have nothing to do with each other. But you're pointing out that there actually is a trend that those two go together. Is that correct? A hundred percent. Uri, I think that those two, it's key to understanding the anti-Zionism um, to understand the de-Judaization. Um, first of all, I'll just you know make a few points. And number one, one colleague who wrote to me, um, and there were many colleagues who wrote in great distress about this this statement from all over the United States. Um, and one of whom uh, said to me, you know, where is the true academic dispassion of these scholars? Mm -hmm. um, in other words, for historians, this is a very ahistorical document. Mm -hmm. You know, it talks about the dispossession, the Israeli dispossession of the Palestinian people in 1948. It talks about the fact that whatever Israel has accomplished, the language is something like, you know, is, is Israeli society, culture, um, politics were basically hoisted on Palestine. So the land is Palestine. The land is not, you know, is not the land of Israel, or the land is not even contested, you know, between those who see it as the land of Israel and those who see it as Palestine, the land is Palestine. Um, where's the nuance that um, the, this displacement of the Palestinian um, population occurred only after the Palestinian Arabs rejected partition, uh, went to war, brought in five armies to destroy uh, the, the Jewish community of, of uh, Eretz Israel and the nascent, the nascent state, um, that even uh, when when the uh, Zionist leadership had accepted partition, that they also made room for Arabs within the Jewish state, within partition Palestine. Um, and um, the, this displacement only occurred um, 
after the after the Palestinians rejected all of that, went to war, made it clear that their intention was to completely wipe out the Jewish community there, um, and most of the Palestinian population fled, and only a minority was expelled. Um, and it only happened, you know, in the heat of this complete you know, total war between two populations. Just along the lines of what you were just saying, I, in my perspective, not only was this letter not trying to be objective or to show, but they, they actually make no qualms about siding with the Palestinians. And this, the paragraph that stood out to me most was that they say, we share and hold the pain of Gazans who have lost and are losing family members, homes, property, businesses, cultural institutions, medical facilities, and civilian infrastructure to Israeli bombings and Palestinians in the West Bank who have lost loved ones in shootings by security forces. We affirm the pain, fear, and anger of Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel who have lost loved ones and homes to unjustifiable and indiscriminate Hamas rockets. So they acknowledge that there's Hamas rockets, but the language that they use is so interesting to me. We share and hold the pain of Gazans, but we affirm the pain, fear, and anger of Israeli Jews and Palestinians. We don't share that fear. That's theirs. We feel the pain of the Gazans. And I just thought it was so interesting. Like, of all things, that would be the place where they could say, we care about all people. We don't want any violence. And they didn't even do that. Right, right, exactly. Now, I, I just have to say that, you know, this statement probably, probably just through a negotiation of those who wrote it, you know, it has those few throwaway lines um, about Hamas rockets, about... Um, you know, way down in the letter about the connection of Jews to the land of Israel, you know, long, you know, but, you know, after it first, you know, lab clearly labeled Israel a colonialist state of Jewish supremacy. Um, but, right, the empathy is with the Palestinian people. The identity is with the Palestinian people. And notice, you know, what I said in my article, that these scholars um, hardly recognize uh, Jewish peoplehood, Jewish nationhood, you know, they argue that it's constructed, it's a late identity, but yet they have no problem embracing um, collectivities of a much later minting. You know, the Palestinians who didn't call themselves Palestinians until the 1960s, um, many other groups, you know, as well. You know, those groups, they openly embrace, let alone the irony of what you're talking about of you know, embracing a collectivity and empathizing so thoroughly with a collectivity that wants to destroy your collectivity, right? And in fact, would destroy them individually too if they had the chance. So Dr. Carl, I'm, I'm just curious because the, a bunch of these names, you know, most of these names are, are not familiar to me. One of them was actually one of my professors in, in college. So I was like, oh, shout out. Um, but um, most of these people are not people I actually know. And I'm sure, as you mentioned, you've read many of their works. I'm sure you, you know many of these people. Have you spoken to these people? Because you came, it's a very, very strong response in your article. And there are some things that I really related to, some things I didn't. Hopefully we'll be able to kind of ask you more questions about it. But I'm wondering kind of their perspective because one of the things for example that you said is um, that it's clear in your eyes that if what these professors called for actually were implemented it would it would really be the end of Israel and I'm wondering is that truly what they believe as well and they're kind of not just okay with it that's actually what they're looking for like have you spoken to them have you heard their perspectives beyond the literal words of the letter um first of all some of them yes some of them yes um, some of them are actively calling <laughs> for the dismantling of Israel as the Jewish nation state. 
Um, you know, there's one, I don't want to mention any names, but there's one that I actually had this conversation with. He actually, uh, four or five years ago, admitted to me that um, this would, uh, you know, if the Palestinians became a majority, um, brought back, you know, brought in millions of descendants of Palestinian refugees in, into into what is now Israel, that this would be the end of, of Israel and, and as many Israeli Jews who could leave, would leave. And yet he said that, and from his perspective, you know, what he sees as the quote unquote apartheid, which of course I completely reject what he sees as the, you know, uh, you know as the ongoing uh, evils of the occupation, et cetera, justify the end of the Jewish nation state in Israel. Now, I believe that there were some people who probably signed who you know didn't read it too carefully, or maybe uh, in my opinion read it naively. Who who believed when it was when it was talking about equality between Jews and Palestinians, you know, in in the whole land that it was referring to could could refer to a two state solution. Although you know, based on my reading of the letter and everyone that I know's reading of the letter, that was not the intention of of the letter and those who wrote the letter. Um, yeah, I just want to say that the people who wrote to us, not just me, but other YU professors from all over the country, talked about the incredible pressure that they're coming under to sign um, statements like this from their departments. You have to remember that most uh, universities in America don't have a separate Jewish studies department. They have uh, a Jewish studies program and historians of Jewish history in the history department, Hist um, scholars of Israel in the Middle Eastern studies department. And you had history departments, you had Middle Eastern departments that were organizing these anti-Israel statements, some of which, many of which were worse than this statement, you know, more extreme than this statement. And, you know, to be the only member of a department not to sign a statement um, is, is very, very uncomfortable especially imagine if, if the professor's not tenured. Imagine if they're an assistant professor knowing they're coming up for tenure um, and that their future, their fate at the university is in the hands of their colleagues. Um, and I think that it's not incidental for that reason that, that um, a large percentage of those who signed were assistant professors. Um, but even if you're a full professor, you're coming under this pressure. I have a, a colleague at a secular university who said to me, who did not sign this letter, who said to me, just to be a Jewish studies professor at a secular university today in America puts you under a cloud of suspicion that you are a Zionist, you know, that you are a supporter of this terrible state of Israel. And therefore, and this is his opinion, not my opinion, although it's my opinion too, um, that many of these people are signing the letter simply to get themselves out from under that cloud of suspicion. Well, you touched and, before and on the de-Judaization of Jewish studies. So maybe this is a good place to elaborate on that a little bit. You didn't really get to that so much. Yes, yes. Okay. So, you know, I think that the two trends are coming together. Um, you know, first of all, I, I, I talked about a few incidences in that article, you know, about a colleague who wrote about a scholar of Jewish nationalism. And, you know, we invited him four years ago to speak at YU. And, you know, he said, well, I think, you know, he was talking about how scholars of nationalism basically say that all national identities are constructed, imagined, you know, et cetera. And he said, well, in the case of the Jews, I have to admit that they were a group, you know, something like that, that they were historically a group, but that's all he could say. Um, and in terms of nationhood, you know, now, you know, I, I understand the argument, you know, that, that, um, that 
nobody was a modern nation in the way we understand modern nations before the age of nationalism. But if anybody had all the ingredients of you know, what a modern nation is and did consider themselves a national entity, it was the Jews. You know, and, and in this regard, the Jews were not like other groups that had no conception um, beyond a local identity. You know, until, you know, from, from uh, I, I forgot, you know, the, there's a famous book, you know, about um, um, how French peasants, you know, peasants in the local areas saw themselves as connected only to the local area. And it was only in the late 18th century that they, were, they, they started seeing themselves as Frenchmen. You know, similarly in Poland, you know, local identity versus Polish identity. Well, you know, Jews have seen themselves as Jews with a major national component to that identity for millennia. You know, and so, you know, to see this, the Jews is completely fitting into this model of modern, you know, this, 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 this academic model of, of national identity is to distort the historical reality. Um, and in terms of this de-Judaization, I think that that's all part and parcel of it. You know, it's an attempt to look at all the ways in which the Jews are um, just like their neighbors, rather than the ways that the Jews kept themselves distinct. Now, I'm not arguing that it's not important to look at, you know, acculturation and, you know, ways that, and the ways that Jews have been influenced by their larger societies. But the bottom line is that the Jews, um, as, a, as a national group, you know, which I'm willing to say, you know, as a, as a national, you know, um, religious group, you know, for millennia have suffered terribly for their refusal to merge with the majority population. And um, so we need to spend more attention in Jewish studies, from my perspective, looking at the ways and, and the motivation for Jews to remain distinct, rather than just all the ways that the Jews were just like everybody else. Um, you know, just a few examples. In my field, East European Jewish history, um, over the last uh, decade, decade and a half, there's been what's referred to as a Polish and Russian turn in the field. So um, many, many scholars are now looking at um, the ways in which Jews were embedded in the Russian language, linguistic and cultural milieu and the Polish linguistic, uh, 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 linguistic and cultural milieu. Um, and that's, 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 it's certainly deserving of attention. However, um, it's diverted attention and, and it's, it's, it's really taken, um, it's taken our focus away from the fact that in 1897, um, when a census was taken in Tsarist Russia, 97% of Jews declared Yiddish as their mother tongue. You know, so the overwhelming majority of Jews in Eastern Europe, you know, through the Russian Revolution, um, indeed, um, in many places, right up to the Holocaust, were Yiddish speaking. Up until 1917, in Tsarist Russia, in, in many places in the Habsburg Empire, the, the majority of Jews, the clear majority, were religiously traditionalist, what we would call today Orthodox. In, in, in interwar Poland, at least 50%, right up to the Holocaust. And yet, and this is admitted by um, leading people in the field, until very recently, and still uh, the, major, the, the, the major trend, is to basically write out these religious traditionalists from the narrative. So instead, scholarship is on the Russified Jews, the Polonized Jews, um, to the extent that it's about 
um, quote unquote Jewish Jews. It's about um, Yiddishists and and uh, and Jewish socialists, etc. A lesser extent Zionists. Um, in in ancient Jewish studies, um, the um, the rabbis are oftentimes written out, seen as as not important. Um, rabbinic Judaism seen as a uh, a minority phenomenon. Um, the one exception, the one work that is studied um, is more, is the Babylonian Talmud, the Bavli. Why? Because um, the Babylonian Talmud to many of these scholars is a project of creating a diaspora Jewish identity devoid of the land of Israel. So it becomes part of the anti-Zionist agenda. Wow. And you also mentioned in the article that Jewish studies departments are trying to remove Hebrew as a requirement is how prevalent is that I don't know how prevalent it is and I wouldn't say you know each department you know we go department by department or program by program but I would say it's a it's a uh, it's a push um, just two examples um, a colleague of mine in in uh, ancient Jewish history pointed out that a leading rabbinic scholar just posted on social media that mod knowledge of modern Hebrew should not be a requirement for um, for someone to get a PhD in uh, in rabbinics. Mm. You know, and and indeed, I've met and seen uh, people who have PhDs in rabbinic literature. You know, who who barely could make their way through the text in in the Hebrew and and the Aramaic originals. Um, in in my field, you know, as I was part of a panel um, in December <laughs> um, on a, at the Association for Jewish Studies Conference online, where we were talking about 20 years, the last 20 years of the field in general and the state of the field. Um, and um, I was the only one on the panel to argue for a return to um, a concentration on um, those Jews who practiced uh, traditional Judaism, who spoke Yiddish, um, uh, um, knowledge of, of texts and, 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 you know, those who engage deeply in the textual tradition. Um, the others were talking about expanding the field um, or, you know, as one person called to it, deparochializing the field. Um, one person was saying the field is far too parochial. We need many more non-Jews to be scholars of Jewish history. Now, let me state clearly, uh, I'm all in favor of non-Jews studying Jewish history in the same way that I think that non, let's say, um, non-Chinese people should study Chinese history and culture. But just as nobody would, would, would take seriously a person um, who, uh, in, in Chinese studies, let's say, who doesn't um, have a deep knowledge of Mandarin, you know, so too, um, somebody who studies Jewish studies or most fields of Jewish studies needs a deep knowledge of Hebrew and other Jewish languages. So when a person on the, you know, argued that we have to get rid of the Hebrew and Yiddish requirements in order to attract non-Jews to the field, you know, that's just, uh, you know, that's the deparochialization. Do you, and do you, do you see that as a trend? Like, meaning it sounds like you had a conversation with one person where the person made this argument. And I agree with you. It seems like a strange argument in an academic field to say, let's, you know, this person doesn't have to have knowledge of this very, it seems, critical piece. But uh, do you see this as a larger trend? Or this kind of sounds like maybe it was just one person. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Number one, it was a, it was a, uh, it was a prominent person in the field. Number two, this is, this is a trend beyond that individual conversation. As I said, um, 
my my friend in in ancient Jewish history has seen the same trend in rabbinics. Um, you know, I think there's such a huge concept. But I'm sorry, I thought you said with rabbinics that the person said you didn't need to know modern Hebrew. You're saying they didn't need to know Aramaic or you know. Well, they didn't, they didn't say that. But let me ask you a question: How can a person uh, appreciate um, the scholarship uh, of the rabbinic period? if they write out all the scholarship that's being produced and has been produced in Israel. Right, absolutely. That's why my understanding was that people studying Jewish studies, you, you know, you have to know German, you have to know way more languages because it's also about the fields in which you have um, primary sources and in which things people are publishing. So it's not just about Hebrew for the sake of, oh, there's like something special about the Hebrew language. It's also like literally you have to be able to understand the scholarship. Exactly. You have to be able to understand the secondary scholarship and also the primary sources. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. have to understand, yes, that there were a few places in, throughout Jewish history and, and, to, and even today as well where the majority of the population uh, didn't know Hebrew or didn't engage in this textual tradition. You know, um, you know, American Jewry today, you're in the 20th century, you know, um, you know, uh, British Jewry in, you know, the late 19th century, etc. But you know, how many scholars can focus on those communities versus focusing on the communities where if the majority didn't necessarily understand, you know, the great classics, the Talmud, etc., these were their foundational texts. And the leaders that they looked up to were the interpreters of, of, of this text. You know, so you have a, I guess what I was trying to say is you have this overabundance, this over-concentration on um, the on the margins as opposed to the center. You know, you have this over-concentration on, you know, Jews who, you know, espoused all sorts, all all kinds of alternative identities, you know, rather than the majority. And, and, And not that there shouldn't be studies about these groups, but it's a matter of balance and the balance is completely shifted in the opposite direction. And, and this is, it's a, it's partially a product of the, of the lack of uh, linguistic abilities on the part of these scholars. And it's, it's also an ideological agenda. The truth, I'm just thinking like, I I don't mind, you know, it seems like very much the way the world works in general, right? Like something goes in one direction for a very long time. People want to shake it up completely. And the way they shake it up is by going to the other extreme. And then you kind of end up in the center, right? That that sounds like a pretty normal trend. But it sounds like what you're saying is that the extreme here is incredibly dangerous, right? To bring it back to your letter, you're arguing that the extreme here and the extreme in Jewish studies, which I think you're trying to draw a connection between the extreme of maybe maybe saying Hebrew is a little bit less necessary, or maybe like saying different things like that, to you relates also to this blaming of Israel for the, the, the I think the phrase, uh, I want to use your exact, they blame Israel for the intensification of hatred against it while embarking on a radical de Judaization of their own academic discipline. So it sounds like you're saying that these things are related and there is a real danger in the margins. It's not just like, okay, it's a little extreme, but we'll see what happens. You think that there's there's like a physical danger, like Israel itself could be destroyed and people are not taking that seriously. Is that the argument you're making? And, and, the, and these scholars in the name of a progressive ideology and at best, and in the name of self-protection and you know uh, and careerism at worst, are ready to put the seven million Jews of the state of Israel in physical peril, 
let alone the, na the, the national, the collective national project that is Israel and, and Israeli culture. Um, and to me, there's nothing more immoral than putting somebody else or many other people in danger um, to feel good, either to make your conscience feel good um, when there's nothing at stake for you personally, you know, or, the, or you individually are not in that physical danger. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, to me, that's the height, that is the height of immorality, um, you know, to, um, because the bottom line is um, that these proponents of binationalism can talk about, you know, the Switzerland of the Middle East all they want. All they have to do is look around. They don't even have to get to the other Arab states. They just have to look at Gaza, which is ruled by Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, where you know the Palestinian police just just murdered a, uh, a, a you know someone who spoke out against uh, um, Mahmoud Abbas. You know to to see um, what politically would probably be, in all likelihood, would be um, if the Palestinians became the majority of the country when. Um, when there would be Palestinians who attack Jews on the streets, um, now the army and the and the police would be largely Arab, and there would be nobody to protect these Jews. You know, the Israeli Jews, four million of whom, by the way, four million are descent of of Israeli Jews are descendants of refugees, Jewish refugees from the Arab world, who know what it's like to live as dimmi, know what it's like to live as as the second class citizens. Um, in, in a Muslim majority um, and, you know, protecting them from going back to that. You don't have to be a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jewish nationalist to want to protect or see the, the necessity to protect 7 million Jews who will soon be more than half of the Jewish people who live today in Israel. My concluding statement would be that those who are denying the Jewish collective you know, first of all, I mentioned before to Rifki that um, they are willing to put um, the lives of 7 million Jews in Israel. We know what happened in Israel 20 years ago, 20 to 15 years ago during the Second Intifada, when uh, Jews were being blown up, you know, at one point almost every day. I, don't, I didn't see many of these people who signed this letter um, protesting or writing letters uh, against uh, a Palestinian terror then. So we know we know what the future um, very well could and and in all likelihood will bring if God forbid um, their plan would ever come to fruition. Um, but and I said that they would be safe in America, but ultimately they wouldn't be safe in America because um, the 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 next point is that if Israel would disappear as the Jewish nation state, this would embolden. Islamic terrorism to continue its war against democracy, you know, in Europe and ultimately in the United States. This would continue the delegitimization of Jewish identity and the increase of anti-Semitism. So ultimately, um, these people are temporarily um, taking the heat off themselves by signing these letters, but in the end, they are only hastening, they're, they're engaging in a process that will only increase anti-Jewish hatred and, anti and hatred of democracies.
Uh, it's so frustrating because I know we, we have to end, but there's so much I want to follow up on and, and want to kind of understand more because I'm just, uh, uh, I'm not convinced. Okay. All right. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to hold off here. Um, Dr. Carla, thank you so, so much for speaking with us. Um, there's so much more we could have talked about. And of course, um, this was really, really, really interesting conversation. And of course, we'll put the link to the letter itself and to your article and everything like that in the show notes so people can read it for themselves and really uh, come to their own opinion. Thank you so much, Dr. Carla. Thank you. Thank you to Uri and to Rifki. So, Rifki, it sounded like you had a lot going on in your mind that you wanted to push back, question. Um, uh, I did also. There's a lot we didn't cover, obviously. But, yeah, I mean, what, what, are your t- what are your takeaways from that conversation? Uh, honestly, okay, too much. First of all, it was great It was great speaking to him because it's always interesting. Like, I feel like so often I'll read an article and I'll have very strong feelings about it. I'm like, oh, this is stupid. Oh, this is amazing. You know, things like that. But then when you get to talk to the person, you kind of almost, you you, you recognize that, your initial, or I don't want to say you, maybe I'm the only person this superficial and uh, immediately certain of my opinions. You kind of, you know, recognize that it's really the, the humility of taking a step back and saying, okay, maybe still fundamentally I have questions or maybe I still fundamentally, you know, think this, but at least now I have a more nuanced thought about it because you can have a conversation. Articles are always less exciting to me than being able to talk to the person who, who wrote about it. So I, I, I did feel as I was reading the article, I felt a little bit um, cynical. I felt a little bit like he's making claims that I feel like I at least he's not citing evidence, right? Maybe the evidence is there, but he's not talking about it. So when he says things like, you know, like one of the things I pushed back on was about like um, taking Hebrew out of the department. I'm like, this, you had a conversation with one person. What does that mean? So him, I think he, he did give a little bit more context. Well, to so that. are you saying that if he is in fact correct about some of these things, then you would agree with him that this is very problematic and scary? Um, problematic and scary are interesting words because I was thinking about the way he talked about the physical danger to Israel, and I wanted to. I was thinking about that also, sort of the link between whether when Jewish studies professors feel less intensely Zionist, quote-unquote, or whatever that means, if that ends up translating to a physical danger for Israel, I'm still not convinced Well, you didn't say they're that. less intensely Zionist, they're anti-Zionist. Do they call themselves anti-Zionist? Oh, this letter, did you read the letter? The letter... Yeah, of course. Did I read the <laughs> okay. letter? Chutzpah. Of course I read the letter. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that this letter is an anti-Zionist letter, but of course... I don't they, think you can be a Zionist terms. and call Israel a colonialist endeavor... What? Why not? Israel's a colonialist endeavor. Hi, my name is Rifki, and I'm Which a Zionist. Which country were they colonizing on That's not how of... colonization works. Okay, what do you okay. mean? We like, shouldn't get into this. England now. was colonizing, you know, France and England were colonizing West Africa, and they weren't officially called countries. That doesn't make no, it not They were going on behalf powers. of England and France. You're proving my point by saying that. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. But either way, like, I think fundamentally, the idea of what... You know, I don't know. We're, we're going too, too deep into this. It, it's, a, it's a deeper conversation. I do believe that colonialism is a part of what the Zionist endeavor is, was, all those things. But it's not the entirety, right? I'm, I'm pretty and confident totally, that people who signed this letter would not call themselves Zionists. But that, that could be up for debate. Okay, but uh, as we've talked about in the past, language, I think, is always less important. Like, I, I don't want to get caught up in the semantics of, is it Zionist? Is it not well, But Zionist? it's interesting is that it you're saying this. You're questioning the, the, the fear of the physical danger, because isn't that like the whole theme or one of the the main themes of the last year and a half in terms of Black Lives Matter and this talk around racism yeah. is that a, speech it, can lead to physical violence. A hundred percent. And so and, why and, should and, that be true in one case but not in the other? 
When did I say it was true oh, in one case and I thought not the you were, other? I thought you were downplaying his concern about physical... I am downplaying cons- the concern, but I'm downplaying the concern in general. I think in general, when people talk about speech leading to physical danger or actual physical action, physical violence, I think we need to see evidence because that feels like a strong claim, right? So when we talk about... Um, uh, you know, someone yelling kike at a Jew on the train and say that leads to physical violence with people beating up Jews. If we can draw that causation, if we can actually say, you know, we see X and then we see Y, you know, then I'm totally, totally down. Well, I think but it's usually I'm hard to draw to see those concrete that, con- connections, but I, I hear what you're saying. At least, I just think it's almost impossible to, s- to do that. You kind yeah, of have to true. look at it, it and is, come, it is to hard a, to pull off. come to a judgment. Anyway, I, I think it was a very interesting conversation, but I also would love Agreed. to hear other perspectives. I would love to yes. speak to somebody who actually signed that letter or wrote that yes. letter. To me, that would be extremely 100%. interesting to hear. And I hope we can. So actually, that's like that. we could call out to listeners right now. We do have a couple people who we're going to be reaching out to. But if anyone listening either signed the letter or as someone who signed the letter that they, they feel like they can put us in touch with, because we would love to speak with someone who actually signed the letter and get their perspective. Obviously, as Uri, as you you mentioned during the conversation with Dr. Carlip, not every single person is going to have the same perspective, but at least we'll be able to kind of hear from someone mm-hmm. on the inside and hear kind of where they're coming from. So yeah, that would be great. And it, the listeners, you know, oh, it's so crazy to do this again. You know, listeners, of course, the conversation, we want to hear from you about recommendations you have, but we want to hear from you in general, hear what you think about the letter, hear what you think about the article, and hear what you think about our conversation and where where we went wrong. So please, please, please be in touch with us. You could send us an email at talkingtalklesspodcast.gmail.com. Or, of course, join the conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Talkless Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Drive In Productions. They are the sponsor of this week's episode. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Talkless. Bye, everyone. Zagazun, Lee Trout.